One of the, uh, the challenges of being an infrequently attending elder is that there are not many opportunities to uh, have the privilege of preaching to the church. And then you have so much you want to say that you're trying to crunch in. So we're going to see how well we do today. I might get halfway through my message. Let's see. I've got the responsibility today of launching our series, looking through uh, the book of Exodus. So we're going to come to that in a moment. Just a little bit of context for that. If you read through uh, Genesis, you start to see the narrative building, uh, particularly just the way the... Uh, God is unfolding his purposes for his people and uh, his intention and ambition to have for himself uh, a people uh, that, that will be of every, every nation and every tribe and every language. And so uh, we pick up the narrative in Genesis 12, Abraham God says to him, I'll make you, this is the, the covenant he makes with Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Uh, Abraham begat Isaac. Uh, if you know your, your biblical history, we see God renewing this covenant in Genesis 26. I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And we'll give, we'll give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. And Isaac has uh, Jacob and in Genesis 28, we see this covenant underlined again. Your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And if you, uh, if you know your uh, uh, West End musicals, you'll know that uh, Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom was Joseph. Uh, he was sold into slavery, ended up in Egypt, humiliated, uh, you know, accused of crimes he'd not committed, sent to jail, abandoned there. But then, again, if you know the story, read it. It's, a, it's just wonderful to read through these stories. You know, he interprets a dream that Pharaoh had had and became advisor to Pharaoh, and then became overseer of the whole of the nation of Egypt. Astonishing um, sort of uh, restoration and, and exaltation, if you like. And uh, in the famine, uh, it's amazing the number of times God uses famine to steer his purposes. Uh, Joseph invites his uh, brothers uh, to, uh, to Egypt, and as you know, uh, they didn't recognize him at first. There was a beautiful reconciliation. It's all there. Read it. Uh, and uh, Joseph invites Jacob, his father, and, uh, and his 11 brothers to join him in Egypt, and they settle in Egypt. And at about that time, there was probably a fa the commentators would say it was probably a family of about 70 people. So at this time, it was, it was sort of like one extended household. Twelve, uh, a father with his, his 12 sons and uh, the, uh, their extended family of about 70 people. So we're going to pick up the narrative in Exodus. I'm going to read from chapter 1, verse 6 through to the end of the chapter. Um, I, I do encourage you, uh, I might sound a little bit old school, but I want to encourage you to, um, when you come to hear someone preaching, bring a, a Bible, preferably a paper, so you don't get distracted by uh, angry birds or something. <laughs> and, uh, 
It's just, I've, I have, you know, it's helped. I mean, it will be, I mean, we're grateful to the, uh, the tech team putting up the text up here as we're... But there's something about anchoring yourself on the page and finding, and, and, you know, you, and then you're sort of remembering this and you come back and you can turn back to it. So there, there is something, although it's not so, um, you know, I don't know, popular these days, I just encourage you to follow these things in a Bible printed on paper. I'm reading from the NIV version on this occasion. So picking up at verse 6, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. And then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pitom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, don't see those names often, uh, biblical names given to children these days, but there we go. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. And the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. I mean, this has gone beyond Israel now. It's like every boy got to go. So I'm going to draw your attention to three things in these verses here. Number one, facing a regime change. Number two, the challenges of multiplication. And number three, the demonic strategy to eliminate men. Okay? So we see facing a regime change. You know, that the one generation had died out. A new king was in place. And he didn't know about Joseph. He didn't know about these people, what a benefit and blessing they were to their culture. The people of God became not welcome in their own context. Does that sound familiar? We're living through a regime change ourselves. The queen is dead, long live the king. Increasingly, the precepts of God rejected, abandoned in our culture. Do you hear what I'm saying? Okay. Well, we're living through this. I'm just making this observation. We're living through a regime change. We're living through, in my lifetime... A, a resolute and determined abandonment of the wisdom of God 
that would condition or shape everything in the way that we think, in the way that we understand our family, and the way that we understand how legislation and justice should work. We've abandoned that, and we're living through a regime change. And it's got, I think it's going to get uh, harder before it gets easier in our nation. We just have to be prepared for that. You know, particularly if you're of an older generation, we've been used to living with a broad, tacit tolerance of our views. But for the younger generation, that isn't the case anymore. And then they're going to be facing very hostile opposition to simple biblical truth. And uh, we need to be prepared for that and not surprised by that, nor intimidated by that. So I just want to make that observation that it's, it's helpful to see what happens when there is a regime change. And what happened here is that the people of Israel faced a challenge through their own fruitfulness and their own multiplication. As Israel was multiplying, they faced challenges. They became a threat to the new regime, and they faced challenges of oppression. And uh, we just read how uh, threatened Pharaoh was and the measures that he put in place to try and restrain the multiplication and growth of the people of God. Now, we are multiplying here in Ipswich. Hallelujah. Yeah, when I came along to this church about 10 or 11 years ago, I think there were about 70 or 80 adults, maybe 100 of us gathering on a Sunday morning. There's many more gathering now. Praise God. I am a raging introvert. I am overwhelmed by large crowds. I don't stand here because I've got a huge appetite to stand in front of a large crowd. I stand here because God has anointed me and called me to do it. It's not something I particularly relish. Much as I love you all, I'd rather just have a coffee with you and uh, cuddle you and that. But actually to stand in front of you is, is mildly terrifying. Yeah? We're facing different challenges here. You know, it's not as... You know, I don't know everybody in the room anymore. You know, there are lots of people who don't even know, don't know who I am, and I, I've not had the privilege of meeting you yet. I've got friends here that I've known for years, and I don't get any time with them. And I miss my friends. You know, I'm not here very often, and I'm back, and I see them all, and I'm thinking, you know, I just don't get the time. It's a very different dynamic we're living in here. Okay? And I know that for some of us, this has been a big, a big transition and a big challenge. And uh, thinking, you know, how, where do I find my place here? How do I fit here? There's a challenge of multiplication. And I just, feel, I just want to say two things, really. Number one, um, and I'm speaking to myself, we've got to put this in the bigger picture, okay? Because at the end of the day, and I want to say this uh, gently, um, because I'm speaking to myself as well as others that may, you know, this may be pertinent to as well. Do you know, it's not about us. It's, it's actually not about me. It's not actually about my preferences. You know, This is about the coming kingdom of God. I'm living in a regime change. I'm living in a nation that is sliding away from God. I'm living in a, in a, in a culture that has turned its back against God and rebelled against him. And I'm complaining because lots of people are gathering to worship God. What is my problem? <laughs> Morris. Come on. I want this place rammed with people. I want to be stinking with sweat. I want to be offended by my lack of personal space. <laughs> because I want 
the glories of God to be made known to a helpless, hapless, hopeless culture that has abandoned God. So I'm saying, God, bring them in, please. I want thousands in here. It's not about me. It's not about, oh, you know, I can't, I don't see my friends anymore. Yeah, no, but I've got all eternity with them. You'll be sick of the sight of me for eternity. I'm going to be bothering you. Yeah, I missed you on earth. Let's spend a thousand years together in heaven. Okay? We've got all the time in the... Come on, we, we, those of you who are safe, and I'll come back to that in a minute, we've got all the time in the world. We've got all the time, you know? So uh, I just want to encourage you. I don't want to say this in an unkind way because I want to identify with those who've actually found this challenging. All right? Yeah, please think of the bigger picture. Please think of what you are part of here. God's doing something. All right? God's doing something. It's not about numbers. Okay? It's, a, it's about us helping you become mature in Christ. Okay? So we're not, we don't congratulate ourselves about the numbers. But we observe that God is bringing people here and we have a sober responsibility to care and disciple and nurture and train and release and send. And I, you know, God, give us more. Give us more, you know. Why wouldn't we want that? Why would we not want that? And if I have my own little particular neuroses and hang-ups, well, God, give me grace to deal with that, you know. How can we, you know, do you hear me? I don't want to sound unkind. So let's, let's see the bigger picture. What is God doing? Look at what's happening in our nation. Look at what's happening in our continent. And let's give glory to God that people want to come and identify with the people of God and sit in the presence of God and sit under the word of God. Hallelujah. More please. All right. So the second thing I will say is please bear with us. All right. As leaders, we're trying to figure this out. All right, there's actually not many of us who have had the experience of caring for a, an increasing number of people. And we're, we're learning, we're making some mistakes, we're figuring it out. Please bear with us as we work this through, as we learn how to maintain our values of intimate community, of what it means to be a family. We don't want to lose that. We don't want to become a sort of a platform church where everybody sits passively and, and a few guys and men and women at the front tell you what's what. We don't want to become that. We want to become an engaged priesthood. You know, we want to revel in the presence of God. We want to be faithful to the word of God. We want to maintain all of these values. We want to be committed to the mission of God. You're not just here to spectate and applaud one or two people going on a mission. You're all on a mission. All of you. And it's our job to equip you for that. And bear with us as we try to figure that out. We're trying to figure it out, you know. But it's very, very important that we understand that scale, size, is not the enemy of intimacy. Okay, if you read in Acts 2.41, a church had a very dramatic growth curve from 120 to 3,120 in a day. How do you fancy that? It's quite a dramatic growth curve. And in, if you then read Acts to the next verse, verse 42 through to 46, you read the most beautiful explanation of an intimate church culture, of a church that had just had 3,000 added to it. So my conclusion is scale is not the enemy of intimacy. It is possible for us to enjoy familial intimacy, uh, deep and meaningful relationships, uh, a meaningful community within 
the operation of an increasing number of people, okay? Because I've seen it happen in the Bible, it can happen with us, all right? That's the challenges of multiplication. Oh, that took me a bit longer than I... Oh, okay, the demonic strategy to eliminate men. Are you ready for this? So, chapter 1, verse 22. Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. It's horrible. Not just the, the, the annoying Israelites. This is to his own people, all his people. You know, he talks about every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. In other translations, it says all children born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now, we've read this before somewhere, haven't we? Have we read this before somewhere? Okay. Matthew, chapter 2. This is really interesting, okay? Those who have ears to hear, if you want to start looking at uh, what Exodus means to the New Covenant narrative, listen carefully to what's happening here. So verse 13 from Matthew 2. When they had departed, this is Mary and Joseph, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there till I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region, who were two years old or under. Now, eliminating men is a demonic strategy. And this is the challenge we have today of the gender debate. Okay. So who here among us, by a show of hands, who is raising daughters? Okay. God bless you. And we pray that you will find the pathway for your daughter to, in every way, fulfill her God-given promise and purpose and destiny, that nothing would hinder her from standing to her full height and to do all that God has called her to do and to, in every way, stand as a full adopted daughter of the Most High God. Amen? Let the women arise. Let them arise. This is a big discussion for us at the moment. The role of women in the church is quite a discussion. What does that mean? And, you know, there's been systemic errors and mistakes through history that have... Uh, meant that women in certain situations have been held back and have not been able to fulfill their full God-given potential. And we need to move on from that. We've really got to fight for our women to take their place. I want to comment that when we speak about the issue of male headship, this is a concept that is obviously culturally very, very unpopular and comes under challenge in the church. And there are some women who have felt that they have been harmed and uh, they've been the victims of bad practice. And I think that would be true. But it is not the case for all women. And actually, there are many women that I work with who sit very comfortably with the biblical principle of male headship 
and actually feel at times that their voice is underrepresented. And while others who you know, are contending for some things, their voice is heard increasingly, that other people who say, you know, other ladies saying, I, I, I'm okay with this, but they feel maybe their voice is underrepresented. So I'm just trying to put balance. I'm not trying to say one is right, one is wrong. Just trying to say, hey, we want to see our women fulfill their full God-given potential. We don't want anything to hinder that. We also want to honor principles in Scripture that speak about godly order, and we need to work out what that looks like in a mature and responsible way. And uh, I think we need to engage the narrative about this, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But who here is raising sons? Hallelujah. As the debate about redressing the way that women have been oppressed, and it's a legitimate debate, as that debate is being addressed, there is a very much a danger that the pendulum is going to swing and that the silent price we are paying is for young men to know who they are and find their identity. The pendulum swinging the other way. This is how it works throughout history. Nothing new under the sun. Here's an article I read this week written by a female journalist in a national broadsheet newspaper. She said this, bear with me. Young men are in crisis and no one seems to care. It talks about, she talks about Jordan Peterson, a polite Canadian academic known for dispensing gentle wisdom to young men. Make your bed, stand up straight. And he's portrayed as the epitome of toxic masculinity. And she talks about Andrew Tate, kick, kickboxer turned millionaire, influencer, arrested last month, accused of shocking crimes, which he denies. But with a vast following among young men, and one of the most Googled people on the planet. If you don't know who Jordan Peterson is or Andrew Tate, Google it. You'll be one of those. There is a crisis in how men, particularly young men, see themselves and how society views them. A recent viral video gives a striking example. An interviewer poses two simple questions to passers-by in London. What are women good for and what are men good for? And without exception, the respondents, male and female, describe women as hyper-competent, brilliant, hashtag girl boss types, yet they are universally disparaging or silent on the role of men. Without extrapolating too much from a single vox pop, the unanimity is remarkable. It points to a prevailing view of men as useless and problematic. Modernity presents a unique blend of circumstances, unsavory gurus, the readily available technology, a male body image crisis, a gender reversal in education and the workforce. Now that really is toxic masculinity. This is a female journalist in a secular newspaper. We need more focus on the contentment associated with love and family and positive aspects of masculinity, risk-taking, gallantry, duty, to highlight alongside the negative. We need better role models, such as rugby star Courtney Laws, who has championed the institution of marriage, or the footballer Bakayo Saka, who speaks about his Christian faith, and of course the brave young men who are being put to death in Iran every day, fighting for their sisters. There is a gender crisis, and we have got to speak up. Okay, because we do not, you know, you've probably heard me say before, the people of God are not called to be thermometers. We're not called just to 
reflect the temperature of culture. We are called to be a thermostat. We are called to change the temperature of culture. And we cannot do that if we do not find our voice and if we do not speak up and if we do not articulate the narrative of God that pushes back at great personal cost, it will be to us, but is pushing back against a demonic strategy to eliminate men. Okay? There's an identity crisis, a gender identity crisis. I want to give you a little hint, a little tip. All of the core doctrines, all of the core doctrines, you must be able to trace them back to the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We picked up our narrative in Genesis 12. Everything you need to know about the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of creation, everything is established in the first 11 books of the Bible. And one of the um, hermeneutical tools that we have when we are evaluating a doctrine or a pressure on a doctrine is to see, does this resonate with what we read in the first 11 chapters of Genesis? Because Luke, my friend Luke, not Dr. Luke of the Bible, who spoke earlier today, reminded us that God is on the throne and he doesn't change. Okay? And in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it is clearly established that God created humankind, male and female. He made them. There are two genders. The gender is established in the womb by God, and that is never going to change, and nothing you ever say is ever going to move me on that point. Okay? But that is a, that's a painful position to hold today. I think I've lost count of the number of genders. I think everybody's going to have the individual gender soon. You know, when you have the little tick list of uh, what gender are you, it's going to be like sort of 70,000 pages long. You find your own particular gender. No, there's two. Who is shaping this narrative? Is the church shaping this narrative? Is it the voice of God? Is it the people of God shaping this narrative? No, it's a broken culture that's turned its back on God. And we need to find a voice to speak out the narrative of God and the truth of God Friends, we've got to find it somehow. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not sort of rah, rah, here we go, and then we just all forget. I know this is going to be costly, but this is what Exodus is about. This is about a deliverance. This is about a breakthrough. This is about a breaking out of the purposes of God among oppression and the enemies of God. This is what everything is about. And I am running out of time <laughs> to even get, oh, man. Oh, oh, that's a good point. <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs> uh, what am I going to do? Oh, oh, we've got. Some <laughs> okay, I wanted to talk quite a lot about Moses. Moses is a colossus. Chapter two, we see the birth of Moses. We see the extraordinary salvation of Moses. Um, at a time when all the other kids were being killed. But he's a colossus. He's the most important of the Old Testament prophets and leaders. And the life of Moses, he's foreshadowing to us of the life of Jesus, the role he plays in delivering the Israelites from Egypt, uh, the Egyptians, leading them to the promised land, foreshadows the salvation of Jesus. For all mankind, the, the people of Israel were hard-pressed up against 
a barrier that could not be crossed, the divide of the Red Sea. The enemy was crowding in on them. There was no escape. And through uh, the, the, the faithfulness in God and the miraculous powers with which he had been imbued, Moses made a way when there was no way so that the people of God could be delivered. And this foreshadows for us the beautiful deliverance of Jesus Christ who crossed the great divide. There was no way through for us. We were hard pressed by an enemy that we could not overcome in any way. And Jesus on our behalf made a way where there was no way for us to be reconciled to God through a covenant of blood foreshadowed by the covenant of blood that was instituted by the law through Moses. There are so many comparisons to be made. I could go on and on and on. But more than that, it's not just Exodus. It's not just, oh, this is a beautiful book, if you get a chance, written by uh, uh, Terry Virgo. Uh, this is a beautiful book looking at the character of Moses, looking at everything we can learn about him, God's treasured possession. I want to recommend that book to you. There was another book I should have recommended. Sorry, Mr. Tech Team. Uh, Steph Liston, his book on gender quality. I think I put a picture up for it. Please buy this book. This is a book written by uh, Steph Liston, who's part of our apostolic team, and uh, where he has given his... He looks at the seven problems of the gender discussion, and then... He uh, brings his own answer to that. I want to encourage every one of you to buy that book. It's a book that's come out of our own stable, out of relational mission. It's our voice. We try to shape the narrative. We don't want to be pressed into the world's mold. We want to shape the narrative that, that God has given us. This is another great book, uh, God's Treasure Possession, speaking out about Moses. It's not just about the deliverance of God's people, which is beautifully foreshadowed for us through the, test the narrative of Moses, foreshadowing the ministry of Jesus, but also it's about the establishment of a nation. So at the beginning of Exodus, we just see it's a family of 70 people. By the end of Exodus, Israel has been established as a nation living under the law of God. And in the same way, Jesus is not just about saving us. He's about that we are now adopted into his household and we are citizens of a new nation. And we see that foreshadowing as well. And I don't want to steal the thunder of those who are going to be preaching uh, through this series, but this, you've got to trace those narratives. Moses foreshadowing Jesus. The, the ministry of Moses, not just in deliverance against, in, in, against impossible odds, but establishment of a nation foreshadowing Jesus, delivering us against impossible odds and establishing us as citizens of a new nation that will never, ever, ever pass. Hallelujah. So that was about 20 minutes of my sermon, okay? In two minutes. <laughs> it can be done and we get to chapter 2 and verse 22 I'm determined to get through this come on obviously there are some uh, all these I've just summarized hours and hours of resonance between Moses and Jesus but there are some differences you know, obviously Moses is human. We read about his failures as we go through Exodus. Jesus never fails. You know, not the case, obviously. But secondly, and this is really what I want to finish, uh, what I want to land with, really. In verse 22 of chapter 2, it talks about the fact that, that you know, Moses, he has a son. They had some strange way of naming their children in those days. Named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. Now, this is a key difference for us, folks. If Israel were aliens in a foreign land, and they were under oppression, and they were calling out to God to say, deliver us. This is the key difference for you and me. Okay? 
we're living in a foreign land, but we've already been delivered. We've already been delivered. If you're safe, okay, if you're one of the safe ones here, if you're one of the ones who said, God, this world is lost, broken. I'm lost and broken. Jesus, forgive my foolish, rebellious ways. Who am I to think that I know how to run my life? You're the one who made me. Forgive me for my rebellion. I turn away from my rebellion. And I turn to you, Jesus. I turn to you. The, the, the treasure hidden in a field. Would you save me and would you deliver me from this? That's the invitation to every one of us. And many of you in this room have received that invitation and responded. Amen? You're the safe ones. So when we read on here, in verses 23 to 25, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we read about earlier. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. They found their voice. The people of God found their voice in order to appeal to God to deliver them. We must find our voice in order to appeal to God to deliver our nation. Because we're already delivered. We're already delivered. We could be, back, we could be up there kicking back, you know, enjoying the heavenly feast. Oh, isn't that great? What's the first thing we do when we get to heaven? Stuff our faces. Oh, well, worship Jesus. <laughs> Among a number that cannot be numbered, if you're worried about crowds, you've got a big shock when you get to heaven, all right? Okay. But well, we could be there with him now. He's saying, no, I'm sending you back. You know. So we're not here for us. We're not here for our own benefit. Actually, we're the safe ones. We're here for the benefit. We cry out for the sake of others, not for the sake of, we cry out for ourselves. But actually, our primary purpose here is to cry out for the sake of others. And we've got friends, we've got to find our voice. I want to say this tenderly, lovingly. I've come to one or two of our prayer gatherings recently and uh, attended by good-hearted people. I know our heart. I know and a couple of times, Len has sort of said, come on, let's pray for this. Let's, let's all raise our voices and pray for the revival of God. Let's go. It's like, yeah, God, yeah, God come. It doesn't sound very fervent. I, I think the way I would say it, it doesn't sound very desperate. Do you remember two kings? So um, here we go, Elisha talking to the king of Israel. Open the east window, he said. Shoot, and he shot the Lord's arrow of victory. The arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. And then he said, right, take the arrows. Strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. And then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. So I'm not going to say this in a judgmental way. I don't, I don't want to say that. I'm just saying, folks, oh, how desperate are we? 
How desperate are we for the sake of our nation? How desperate, how, how much has it gripped us with holy zeal? This isn't about being a little bit excitable and emotional. This is a disposition, it's a heart set, it's a mindset. I'm zealous for the purposes of God in our land. I'm passionate about the name of Jesus to be spoken with love and affection and not as a curse. It matters to me. I'm fervent about these things. And I want to urge us to find our voice. We've got to find our voice, not only in shaping the narrative that is disfiguring our culture because it is demonic, and that we're presenting the narrative that comes from the heart of God who knows us and loves us. We've got to find our voice in the workplace. We've got to find our voice in media. We've got to find our voice, and it is going to cost us. And we've got to find our voice in prayer, that we're going to lay hold of God and say, God, we're not going to let you go until you do these things. And now I'm going to do a risky thing. Okay? Because I want, I think part of learning to be in a bigger group is we've got to learn to be comfortable with the sound of our own voice. I think that's partly it. You're a bit embarrassed, you know. I'm a bit embarrassed. I think also our public prayer is an overspill of our private prayer. And sometimes I find when I'm in a context and someone says, right, pray out your best, pray, your, your best prayer. And I'm thinking, you know, God, I haven't actually been praying that much lately. And it's like I have very limited uh, vocabulary at the tip of my tongue, you know. So I think often praying out is an overspill of what's going on in here, how I'm praying in here. But this is what has struck me. So bear with me. I am going to overspill just a few minutes here. We read back, did you remember when we were reading about the, uh, the midwives? Did you love that? What brilliant women. What brilliant women. Yeah, if his boy kill him. Oh no, they came out so quick. What can I do? I was here last Sunday and I was looking around the room. Um, first time in five months I've been here. And it just struck me, a uh, number of women. God just spoke to me about there were There were yeah, older women, younger women. Married women, single women, women who were married once but now are reason in a different season of their life. And, uh, and God said to me, among these women, there are some who are particularly called to be midwives of a move of God. Yeah? Now, listen to me carefully, ladies. If your heart is leaping as I say this, there are some women here, you know, all this, all this stuff, the gender debate, you're beyond that. You just, you just want to see God come. You want to see him move. You want to see him move in this town. You want to see him reach the, the broken and the marginalized in our town. And you're going to pray until that happens. And your voice will be heard. Now, if that is you, stand up where you are now. Stand up where you are now. If you know that's you. The midwives of a move of God. Any others? You just know, God. You know, it says in, uh, we've read this so many times, Isaiah 62, I have posted watchmen on your walls. Yeah? They will never be silent day or night. And you who call on the Lord, give yourself no rest. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. All right? Now, this is what we're going to do. Okay? You're going to have to be very brave, ladies. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you three questions. And the, your answer each time is, we will. Okay? And everybody else will say, amen, when you hear them say, we will. You got that? Midwives to a move of God. Okay, I posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. Ladies, will you keep watch over our town and keep pointing people to the coming grace of God to us here? Will you come? Will you speak up for God in a day when our nation has turned its back on God? Louder next time. Will you give yourself no rest and give God no rest until he accomplishes this? Amen. (laughs) Amen. Let's just pray. Ladies, wait, just stand for a moment longer. Stand for a moment longer, ladies. Just where you are around these ladies. Just reach your hands out to them. Lord, this, this isn't just a little bit of fun on a Sunday. Lord, this is a call to arms. Lord, we want to honor and respect the anointing of God on women who really, really feel the burden of the crisis in our nation. And they think, what can I do? What can I do? And God is saying, speak up, pray, don't lose heart, keep watching, keep directing the attention of the church to the coming God of grace, keep, don't, don't lose heart, give yourself no rest, don't worry if God keeps you up at night, it's because he wants to hear your voice, keep talking. Nag God. It's about one of the very few occasions I can find in the Bible where God says, give me a hard time. Give God no rest. We honor you. Speak up. You're midwives of a move of God. And we pray the anointing of God on you now in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 I'm going to finish now, Tom. Oh, we've got 10 minutes. Oh, well, in that case. <laughs> Let's just look at these final uh, verses here. I, you know, as I wanted to say, I want to make the point that we are not like Israel in this narrative because Israel here was looking forward to its deliverance. We are the delivered ones, but we are appealing for the sake of our lost and broken culture. And uh, we are crying out to God on behalf of yeah, but I love, these, I love these words at the end of this chapter. It depends what version you're reading. I'm reading from the NIV. In verse 24, it says, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So in the middle of all of this, I just wanted to, you know, if you, life is hard, all right? Life is hard. God is good. Our destiny is secure. All right? But life is hard. We do face challenges, financial challenges, relational challenges, mental health challenges, physical health challenges. And these are all part of the fact that we're not 
of this world, but we are here, and it's a broken world, and it's a fallen world, and we're still carrying around our broken, fallen bodies that one day will be redeemed, but we've still got to put up with it in the meantime. Yeah? But there are legitimate concerns, but you need to know you have a God in heaven who is concerned. Right? He's concerned for you. Okay? And so... Uh, my appeal here is for us to understand the place we have in history of challenging the narrative of our culture, of appealing for the glories of our God, and of beseeching God to come in glory and in mercy to deliver many. Okay? But he's concerned for you. You know, his life's hard. And we're going to finish with a, a song of worship. <clears throat> so I have a team, if you like, to assume the worship position. And we're going to have uh, in the corner, as usually, we would have a team of, of people who will pray with you for anything that has moved your heart here. Maybe you're challenged about this toxic debate about gender and trying to find your position in that. What does that mean? We'd love to pray for you. you know, if you feel aggrieved by the state of our nation and you're thinking, God, how can I, what, what, what impact can I make? Let's pray for you. If you feel you want to be a voice for God, Let's pray for you. You know? If, you're, if life is a challenge for you, God, God knows, God sees, God is concerned. Let us pray for you. That's what we're here. That's what the family of God is here to do. We minister to one another. Paul says we are all competent as ministers of the new covenant. And we can minister to one another. Okay? So uh, please, let us pray with you. Don't go home carrying a burden. Come over here that we can pray with you and lift the burden with you in the glory and the power of God and in his truth and in the revelation of his Christ. So we'll do that. Let's stand together. Let's worship God.